we're going to cover an entire book of the Bible. All right? The good thing for you is it is the shortest book in the Bible. All right? So if you've got a Bible, turn to 3 John. If you don't know where that is, it's right after 2 John. Right before Revelation. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. All right? 3 John. So who wrote 3 John? John. All right? John wrote 3 John. And uh, we're going to look at it a little different way today. But here's an interesting thing about 3 John. Most people believe that 3 John was written after he had been freed from captivity on Patmos. Now, that's significant. Because what did he write while he was on Patmos? Revelation. And so if 3 John is written after he's freed from Patmos... That means that 3 John is probably the last book written in the New Testament. Not doesn't, doesn't mean that Revelation shouldn't be last because it talks about end times. It's a good end. But if you put the books in the order in which they were written, this book would be after Revelation. So this is the last word that we have from any apostle or any biblical writer pretty amazing when you think about it and it comes from john and it's the shortest thing we have now it's also interesting that it is a personal letter it's almost as if we have been kind of sat into a personal conversation between john and a dear friend at least that's what he calls him my dear friend here's what we're going to do tonight we're going to talk about an invaluable possession that we all have. It goes with us wherever we go, but amazingly, it goes where we don't go. What you think of this prized possession is not necessarily what everyone else thinks of it. We all have one. We may like ours better than other people like ours. We may think more highly of ours than other people think, and we may think lower of other people's than they think. The one word says a lot about who we are, at least in the eyes of the beholder, and it's the word reputation. Your reputation is the estimation or evaluation of your character, integrity, and standing. It could be good, it could be bad, it could be positive, it could be negative, but be assured of this. You have a reputation. People will watch you and talk about you. You can count on it. You cannot escape or lose your reputation. It precedes you, goes with you, and follows you. Charles Spurgeon, a preacher from a long time ago, said this about the importance of reputation for Christians. The eagle-eyed world acts as a policeman for the church. Have you ever noticed that? They're watching the church constantly. It becomes a watchdog over the sheep, barking furiously any time one goes astray. Be careful, be careful of your private lives. I believe your public lives will be right if your private lives are well. But remember that it is upon your public life that the verdict of the world will very much depend. I had a conversation even today with uh, one of our students. It was a brief conversation and just was not really with me. It was I was in a group and they were having a discussion that they were inviting someone to church. And this person said, well, I don't go to any church. Well, why don't you go to church? Well, 
I believe that everybody in the church is a hypocrite. Now, here's the truth. He's right. He's right. I mean, none of us, 100% of the time, do everything we believe. But here's the truth. Everybody in the world is that. Nobody is 100% who they are all the time. But there is some responsibility for us as believers to portray to the world what Christ is like. And you can call that being an ambassador for Christ, which is what the New Testament says, or being an envoy for Christ, or being a representative, as I did a couple of weeks ago. But it comes down to our reputation has a bearing on how we're representing Him. So here are three important questions before we get into the third John. What do you think of yourself? What do you think others think of you? And what does God think of you? The shortest book in the Bible is Third John, and it speaks to reputation. It's only 219 words. It's almost like the postcard of the epistles. It's been neglected many times. It's just like First and Second Timothy, Titus and Philemon, and possibly Second John. It's written to an individual, a man named Gaius. Most people believe it was written... Uh, or, or many people believe it was written. In fact, Eusebius, who was an ancient church historian, said it was penned after John was released from Patmos. It's similar in Second John. It's similar in length and in style, but there are some differences. Third John revolves around four key men and their reputations. It, um, in Second John, the, the problem is showing hospitality to uh the wrong visitors, the wrong people, that you're being hospitable to people you shouldn't be. Third John, the thing is, you're not showing it to people you should. We're going to outline it or look at it tonight as a biography of these four men. And I want you to, as you hear these men, think about your own lives. Let's read it together. Third John it says, To the elder, to my, or this is the elder, to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, gossiping maliciously about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. So here's the, the essence of 3 John. He is writing a personal note to a close friend. 
And what we see in this passage is, like I said, four different kinds of characters. And the first is this, is that Gaius is the first one mentioned here, and he has commendable character. The letter begins in the same way as 2 John, identifying the author as the elder. John became known as the elder. That word there, just to kind of, uh, just for your knowledge, is presbuteros. Anybody know any modern-day words we get from presbuteros? We just had... Uh, the Holy Week service as the Presbyterian Church, right? So that's where that word comes from. Presbyteros means elder, and uh, originally it just meant older. So I'm older than you. I'm your Presbyteros. So if you really want to impress some some of your grandkids sometimes or say, I'm not old, I'm just a Presbyteros. just means an older person, all right? It really meant an older man, but it became to um, be a sign of respect or integrity or authenticity, a, a man of courage and commitment and conviction, a man of spiritual authority. And John was that, and especially apparently to Gaius, that John was, he was an elder. That meant he was respected. He had authenticity and integrity. And so he writes to Gaius and says, Gaius, I commend you for the way you're living. So he gives a few reasons to commend him. First of all, he says because he's living spiritually. Four times John will address Gaius as beloved or as dear friend. It expresses that heartfelt love for this man. Now, just so you know, Gaius is not a common name today. I don't know any Gaiuses. But it was a very common name in their day. In fact, in the New Testament alone, there are three men by the name of Gaius. Um, There's Gaius of Corinth in Romans 16. There's Gaius of Macedonia in Acts 19. And there's Gaius of Derbe in Acts 20. And most people don't think that this Gaius is any of those. It, It would be like Stephen or John. There's, you know, there were lots of Gaiuses. What you see in this passage is that John has a real love for him. And here's the way you can know that. There's this interesting phrase at the beginning of this letter that says, I pray that you may enjoy good health even as your soul is getting along well. The way that's constructed, it's almost as if John says, I wish that your physical health was as strong as your spiritual health. Now, we don't know if Gaius was sick. We don't know if he had a problem. We don't know if there were issues there. But what he was saying is, You are so healthy inwardly, I wish that showed in your physical health. Now, think about this for a minute. If you prayed to God, God, make my physical health resemble my spiritual health. And he answered your prayer. How healthy would you be physically? Some people might be in the CCU. Some of you might be real healthy. You might... You know, you might suddenly grow muscles and have a heart that is beating well. That's a tough question to think about, really. I don't know that I want John telling God, hey, make him just as healthy on the outside as he is on the inside. That's what he says. And John is so impressed by the way this guy lives. What he says is, I want his spiritual life health to show outwardly. It's almost as if 
he had been given a clean bill of health. That even if he was wasting away outwardly, he was in ship shape, top condition inwardly. One pastor has said, Gaius was soul healthy. God expects the same from us. So he lived spiritually. His spiritual life was healthy. But here's the second thing we see in verses 3 and 4. He walked truthfully. I don't know if you noticed this or not, but even as I read it aloud, the word truth is all over the place. It gives me great joy to tell about your faithfulness to the truth and how you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. Here's what you see. He believed the truth, but more importantly than that, he lived it. He says, not only do you have the truth, do you hold on to the truth? Are you faithful to the truth? But in your daily life, and you're walking around, and in your interaction with people, and who you are, you are living the truth. In doctrine and in deed, Gaius was faithful to the truth. His profession and his practice matched. In other words, not only did he talk the talk, he walked the walk. Now, here's an interesting little side note to that. John calls him one of his children, right? Now, we don't think he was actually blood relative. We don't, we don't have any indication that he was John's actual son. But there's a real chance that that meant that John personally led him to the Lord. That John was the one that led Gaius to the Lord, and he, so he considers him one of his children. You know, the truth is, um, when I think back on my life and the people that I have had uh, direct uh, interaction with and leading them to the Lord, talking with them about the Lord, there is this spiritual... Um, there's a connection spiritually that is deep in those situations. I can still tell you the entire circumstance about the first person I ever had the opportunity to help lead to the Lord. I was in seventh grade. It was at Centrifuge Camp. Uh, I was a part of a large class in our church. We had, uh, we, we were a church, our, my home church is about the size of this church. And uh, so our youth group was about the size of this youth group until my class came along. And we had 35 in my grade, in our youth group. We were the weird ones. We had way too many. I mean, when we graduated, we had graduate recognition like we do here. We had 35 people walk across the stage. So when we were seventh graders, they didn't want to take us on the youth trip because the youth didn't want us to go. And that's not very Christian-like, is it? Because we were too big. There were too many of us. So they made an, our own centrifuge trip for all seventh graders. And on the way there, I sat on the bus with a guy named Brian. And we talked a little bit. And just, I, I thought everybody my age was a Christian. You know, I was a seventh grader. I thought, well, why wouldn't you be? And on the way there, I just said, well, what are you hoping to get out of this? He goes, I don't know. I'm trying to figure out if I believe all this stuff. I said, you're what? So we talked about it a little bit. And we got to camp. And on the third night of camp, my best friend Stephen and myself, and then we had a, a guy that was in high school that came as a counselor. Um, which is kind of strange. He was at a high school camp and he was a counselor for us. But we sat out on the porch with our uh, who would be, a guy that would become my spiritual mentor who was a, a 
trainer, athletic trainer at the hospital. And we talked to Brian and led him to Christ. And I can remember moments in that conversation. I can remember the after effects. I can remember him walking down the aisle uh, at camp the next night. You feel like you're, in some ways, not necessarily, I'm the same age, it wasn't like I was his parent, but I was involved. Um, one of my favorite stories about our trips to Brazil was uh, by a guy that, that was in my church in Ripley, who was a state, is a state representative, has been for years. And uh, he, when he decided to go, and I, he's not now because uh, um, he's lost the position, they, or the, they just switch around. He was the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. Now, that means he set the budget for the state of Tennessee. Okay? So that's a pretty important little position there. All right? And he agreed to go to Brazil with me because he thought it'd be cool, and we talked it out. And his mother was the WMU director at our church for uh, 820 years, and she was only 70 years old. But, you know, I mean, she just had always done WMU. She was the director. And so he said, my mom wants me to go, and I'm going to go. And so we got down there, and he, he ended up on construction. That's where he wanted to be, and so I put him on construction. And all he did all week was build a wall. Just put blocks up. Randy's been down there. Randy's got to work on buildings. He just got to, this guy just got to build a wall. And he told me on the fourth day, he said, I want to be real honest with you. That first or second day, I thought, there are lots of things better I could be doing with my time than putting up a wall. He worked right next to a guy all week that they couldn't talk at all. They just... He had to go get more masa. He went and got more masa. He gave him the block. Whatever needed to happen, they communicated by trial and error. On the next to last day, he got an interpreter over and said, just tell him I want him to come tomorrow night. We have a celebration service at the end of the week. So this chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee works all week putting up block wall next to a guy he can't even communicate with. On Friday night at the service, um, I tell teams that I go with, it amazes me to no end that God still allows me to be a part of what I get to be a part of on those celebration services. Because everybody else does the work all week. They're talking to people. They're sharing the gospel. They're, talk, they're having these conversations with people. I get to be up there and just say, all right, now it's time to make a decision. Let's go. And as I preached that night about John 3.16, I finished and I called for response. People started coming down. It was you know, I mean, they, people that had already made decisions that week, people that for the first time were asking questions about what it means to follow Christ. And I, as I always do, if I can, I get out of the way. Because at that moment, I, I don't want them to be coming to me, the American preacher that's there. They're coming to Christ, and this church is the church that's going to disciple them. And so I immediately wanted to be there. And so as I was walking to the back, I saw the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. And as I stand beside him, I notice that he's rubbing his eyes. I said, man, what's going on? And he just points to the guy that he'd been working beside all week, who is at the front of the church giving his life to the Lord. He said, I couldn't have done anything better with my time than what I've done this week. John had that kind of relationship with Gaius. 
And so when John sees him living for the Lord, he is touched beyond what can be expressed. What's interesting is he bases this on other people's reports. And it goes back to that thing for us that are followers of Jesus. People will never be able to see what we believe unless we act on what we believe. So he lived spiritually and he walked truthfully. But here's the third thing we know about his consistent life. He served faithfully. Verse 5 and 6. You're faithful in what you were doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. He was showing hospitality here, entertaining brother, traveling evangelist for Jesus, who John sent out to go to the different churches. John realized, I can't do it all. I'm getting older. I'm going to send out my team, and they're going to report back to me what's happening. And the reports came back, and like, man, that Gaius, he treated us so well. John knew of his service because of the return to John that reported. The witnesses talked about his love. They talked about the lodging, the food, the money, the encouragement, the standing with them, the being beside them. John had honored God, the gospel, and he sent these men out. And what he found was when they went out to honor God in the gospel, that Gaius was receiving them in a way that honored the gospel. Numbers 7 and 8 tell us that he ministered generously. They went forth in the name of Jesus. They took nothing from the Gentiles. They didn't take anything from the unbelievers. They didn't attempt to finance God's work with the world's money. They depended on the generosity and the the gifts of the church. And in doing so, they were able to be given a place to minister. So what you see in Gaius is this man who is living what he says, that he's loving people genuinely, that he's taking care of those that come his way, that he believes in the truth, and that he is consistently healthy internally. Now, the reason that becomes so interesting is because the next guy is not spoken of in such glowing terms. Diotrephes. Now, that's not a common name either. I don't know a Diotrephes, do you? If Gaius was the commendable Christian, then Diotrephe was not. Instead of serving, he wanted to be served. Instead of loving, he wanted to be loved. Don't you love how John gently describes him as arrogant and proud? He loves to be first. I think about the fact that that, in many ways, is a sign of immaturity. Y'all know that I have two boys, right? Neither one of them wants to be second ever. They always want to be first. I go first. Dad, I want to play first. I want the game first. I want to ride first. I've never heard any of them say, Dad, just let me go last, please. I'm begging you. Can I not? Now, here's where they want to be last, eating their vegetables. Okay, that's the only place. Green beans, Dad, can I eat that last? As believers in Christ, we're supposed to grow out of that. We're supposed to be people that serve, not want to be served. What we see here is prideful ambition. Apparently, um, verse 9 tells us about a letter that John wrote that 
we've lost. It's reception met a problem, the person of Diotrephes, who loves to be first. The issue is not doctrinal. It's that he wants to be first, number one, top dog, head honcho, captain of the ship, CEO, center of the attraction. He wants to be in the center ring of the circus, and he wants to be leading. He's okay going wherever the train is going as long as he is the conductor. Colossians 1.8 says that only Jesus is to be the center. Only Jesus is to be first. He showed arrogance. He wouldn't even receive these guys that John sent. The impression is given he wouldn't even receive John if he came. Now, I want you to imagine for a minute if somehow time machine was created and the Apostle John was going to be here tonight to present his findings and teachings about who Jesus Christ is. And he was going to explain his book of Revelation to us. Now, can you imagine people showing up and going, what is he doing here? We don't want to hear him. That's John. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like to sit under the teaching of one who walked with Jesus, who was at the foot of the cross, who saw Jesus resurrected, who had been through all that he had been through? The tradition holds that John was dipped in hot oil to be killed, and he survived completely unharmed. That'd be a pretty cool story to hear, right? To be able to take the Gospel of John and say, John, I know what you said here, but let me ask you some questions. What did you mean by this? When, when you say in John 3.16, did you realize when you wrote those words how impactful they would be on the history of the world? John wanted to send his personal representatives and possibly even himself to Diotrephes Church. And Diotrephes says, we don't want to hear him. That is arrogance. Can you imagine saying, I don't think I have a thing to learn from the Apostle John. Not a thing. In verse 10, it tells us um, that not only is he not receiving them, but he is gossiping, spreading things wrong. John didn't fear public confrontation about it. He says, if I come, I'm going to ask him about it. He's spreading, listen to what it says, gossiping maliciously about us. Now, gossiping is bad enough, right? It's never a good thing when you say, boy, they are gossiping about me. Praise God. Nobody says that, right? Well, I just wish they gossip about me a little bit more. Nobody thinks that. So when you say somebody's gossiping maliciously, it's really bad. And don't live profanely. What we see is a sad digression for Diotrephes. He went from ambition to arrogance to accusations to actions. He's the opposite of what Gaius showed. The good thing is, John doesn't leave us there. Verse 11 and 12 tells us about another man who was just consistent. He tells in verse 11, don't imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Verse 12, Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. So he commends Demetrius to him, and he says, listen, Diotrephes is bad. Demetrius is good. He's a godly example. 
He says that uh, he possesses a good testimony. There's a threefold witness. He has a good testimony from all, from the truth, and from John and his community. What he says is everyone that meets him says he's living the faith. The truth is that we see in action his faith, and even I commend him to you. So that's a pretty good thing. Everyone that he meets, the truth and I, is a man of a good testimony. Over time, people have watched him be a man of integrity and godliness. It's doubtful that everyone agreed in his commitment to Christ, but what they could not argue was that he was living that commitment out. Here's the last man. And it's the writer, a man named John. Throughout this letter, John has, through positive and negative examples, painted the portrait of good, godly leadership. Daniel Aiken at Southeastern Seminary, based on 3 John, has listed the characteristics of what good, godly leadership is and is not. It is the ability to make wise decisions. It's not the ability to make snap decisions. It is the ability to influence our friends to do what is right. It is not the ability to manipulate our friends to do what we want them to do. It is the ability to discern the heart of our leaders. It is not the ability to judge other people harshly. It is the ability to act after prayer. It is not the ability to act without prayer. It is the ability to hear the voice of God. It is not the ability to speak in God's place. It is the ability to be firm, but it's not the ability to be stubborn. I'd say that's what you call a fine line difference. Pretty much. That didn't work. It's the ability to act quickly, but it's not the ability to act without fault. It's the ability to wait on God, but not the ability to procrastinate. Leadership, good godly leadership, is confidence, but not cockiness. It's calm, not erratic. It's decisive, not the inability to change. It's hearing wise counsel. It's not listening to anyone with opinion. It's patient, not stagnant. It's compassionate, not giving in. It's caring, not controlling. And what we see in John is a man who was a great godly leader. He desired the presence of these fellow believers. In verse 13, he says, I, I, I don't want to do this with pen and ink. I want to see you. I want to see you face to face. He's not a guy that would rather shoot off an email or leave a voicemail or make a phone call or send a text message. He wants to interact and be face to face. One of the things I'm afraid, and I'm as guilty as a lot of people in my generation we're losing in our culture, is face-to-face, one-on-one interactions. One of the great things is I can communicate with people all over this country at any moment in time. One of the bad things is I don't have to go anywhere to see them. I can do it on my schedule and then let them do it on theirs. So we can interact without ever interacting. He desires peace for fellow believers. John hopes to come soon, not later. He wants face-to-face. And he closes with this expression of peace in verse 14. What you see in the book of 3 John are these four kinds of guys. John Maxwell was talking to pastors one time, and he talked about their reputations. And he said this about 
congregations, and it's true about people and influence in your life. He said, people do what they see. They'll forget your sermons, but they'll follow in your footsteps. And as you've got children and grandchildren, as you've got co-workers and friends, they'll do what they see. Remind you that at the beginning we talked about our reputation, that oftentimes our reputation is not what we want it to be. It is what others view it to be. And just the question that I have simply for you is, where do you fit on the scale of these four guys? Gaius, Diotrephes, Demetrius, and John. Not because you can want to compare yourself and see how you feel next to somebody else, but in your commitment to the Lord, How's your faithfulness to him?